turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. That's E-N-S-C-A-P-E-3-D.com. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Thanks for coming back. In this episode, I will sit down with Austin Reese, a senior project engineer with Dursa Hedrick in Denver, Colorado. Austin really is a man who is up for adventure. This past summer, he completed almost 450 miles of hiking through the Colorado Trail. When he is not out adventuring, he is doing structural engineering on interesting buildings such as One River North. One River North is a showpiece building that is currently under construction in Denver's River North neighborhood and is slated for completion in late 2023. The building will include three stories of below-grade parking and 16 stories of above-grade luxury residences with an open-air, 10-story-tall canyon through the center of the building. The exterior will almost appear as if it's cracked open, revealing vast crevices of lush greenery. There will be over 13,000 square feet of open-air environments throughout the structure, including a creek, a waterfall, and walking trail lined with vegetation. Biophilic design, inspired by Colorado's great outdoors, will be integrated throughout the building structure. The floors will be composed of post-tension concrete, with the vertical elements also being concrete. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Austin. To kind of describe for our listeners what the building is shaped like, it's really like an elliptic cylinder, I believe. Is that correct? I, I go with that, yeah. Okay, okay. That extends up the 16 stories. And if you think of that as like a mass of clay, and then there's these pieces that are stripped out of it to create almost reveals or recesses back that look like a canyon, um, look like a nature park practically um how deep are those recesses um some of them cut into the slabs like you know 15 or 20 feet you know pretty far pretty substantial little reveal crazy and what story is the one that's mostly horizontal what level is that at that's like about level nine eight nine ten is kind of where you get the big horizontal reveal okay so essentially, you have another six stories above that that is cantilevering out that 20 feet, right? Because mm-hmm. it's kind of unobstructed through that area, correct? Right. As you move up, that little reveal kind of just moves over, you know, slowly as you go up. So 
kind of undulates as you as you work your way up the building. It is crazy. And it is it's so I mean, for our listeners, it is definitely worth Googling One River North. It is a very artistic nature structure. So it brings in biophilics. Biophilics is integration of nature. So bringing in natural elements such as plants and water to kind of help with mental well-being, just the way that it looks. So I will actually let you describe that in a little more detail. But I guess if we could maybe get started. So when were you brought in on this project? Yeah, so we were brought in kind of very early on. It was it was kind of in the initial stages of the project, the owner and development team were looking to kind of remove the existing building that was on the site. Um, there were a bunch of like really short warehouse type buildings there on the site. And so they wanted to remove those and they knew there would be some elaborate shoring and site work involved. And so they actually brought us on to sort of consult and look at the shoring feasibility and what might need to be done to preserve the you know existing neighboring structure and dig out this basement kind of as like preliminary efforts to see if it was feasible at the site. And so we kind of got our foot in the door with that. And as things progressed in terms of the design, they selected an architect that was local um, in addition to the design architect who's based out of China and L.A. Um, They selected a local architect, and and we've worked a lot with that local architect. And so not only did we sort of already have our foot in the door, the architect put in a good word for us. And so we were basically selected from the get-go. So was this canyon feature part of the original design concept? Yeah, I mean, the earliest renderings that I recall seeing showed it, you know, basically how it is now. The design team, uh, MAD Architects, it seemed like they had already definitely put in a fair bit of pre-design work and definitely spent some time getting things to where they were before we, you know, even saw it. When we came on board, it was still very much a, a confidential project and we weren't allowed to say anything about it and really receive very little information about it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I look at it, it looks like it's something very futuristic. Like the renderings look like something, you know, in 2060 or something like something very futuristic. Uh, But what were your thoughts, I guess, you know, seeing this kind of futuristic sketch and then knowing that you had to implement it from a structural design perspective, what were your thoughts when you initially saw that? Yeah, seeing it, you know, you say future, it's almost like post-apocalyptic or something was sort of my initial thought. It looks like a a regular sort of glass building that's been hit by a massive earthquake because not only does the building sort of have a, a canyon in it, those upper levels are kind of offset horizontally. So it almost looks like it's been hit by an earthquake and kind of the upper half has shifted over and there's this big crack. So it almost looks like a a, a building that's been you know, destroyed, but it's it's there and, and has this plant growing out and just has this insane look. And so when I first saw it, I thought, you know, wow, this is absolutely like a fantastic opportunity for me and my career that I would be so lucky to work on a landmark project like this. That's automatically what comes to mind. Wow. I'm the lucky guy who gets to work on this. Okay, cool. Then reality kind of set in, or at least my, you know, realist mindset of like, this thing is this cool. Any project that I've ever been a part of that looks really cool usually dies in design. You know, maybe the funding isn't there. Something happens and the project just goes away. Or what typically happens is those cool features, you know, get value engineered 
Uh, they get VE'd out during the design. And so maybe it has this cool crack, and then by the time it's all said and done, maybe we have a little tree down here, you know, by the front door. And mm -hmm. so that was kind of my expectation, is that either it would die or it would not be this cool, surely, by the time we got into design. But I was, you know, so excited about it that I didn't worry about those things. I said, okay, if this is what we're doing, I am totally the guy for this. I am above and beyond excited from the get-go and, and all the way through working on it. That's awesome. To your point, saying a lot of times, you know, like things become more realistic, I guess, as far as like implementation and cost comes into play. Did that feature change or like these complex, interesting features that you see from the outside, did those change or evolve through design because of those reasons or not? I think maybe on sort of a small few inches, few feet here or there, maybe things had to shift. But for the most part, you know, the there's a waterfall that connects level six to level seven. And that waterfall was always there. The outdoor terraces and the size of that canyon were pretty much always shown that large. And I think because the design architect kind of had such a say in this, and it was really about his vision, about they, they selected him and he designed this, you know, really cool thing. And it's not like, okay, here's what I kind of think it should look like. Now you guys go and tweak it and save money. I think it was understood like this is a, a crazy vision. It's going to take money, but the ownership team seemed, I guess, open to kind of making it happen. And certainly we went through efforts to save money, but I think for the most part, those crazy features really didn't, you know, get scaled back much. Um, I recall there being, you know, a lot of discussions about maybe what there's, there's a pool on the roof. And so there were many discussions about what would that construction of that pool be? Would it be a concrete pool with like shotcrete? Would it be um, like a, I think it was like a bronze or a copper, like a metal pool? And there were, yeah, these, and obviously that was like a really expensive option. And there were definitely these talks of like, do we go with this really, really cool, nice thing or the cheaper version? And they were able to find the cheaper versions um, when they needed to and still come away with the really cool design. So um, it seemed like from the get-go, they were showing a ton of trees, the, you know, the water features, the slab cutbacks, and most of those things, if not all of them, seem to stay in the design all the way through. So cool. So you alluded to the structure a little bit, but what is the gravity system? Yeah, so it's, you know, a big old concrete building. Everything's concrete for this guy. The gravity system is just concrete columns and concrete PT slabs. So each and every slab is different, basically with this canyon running through it, with the exception of levels three through five. So there's 17 floors or slabs, I should say, above grade, including level one, and then two parking slabs below grade. So, you know, let's say 19 total different slabs. And of those 19 levels of slabs, only three of them repeat. And so one of the big challenges in terms of the gravity design was just the sheer number of PT slab designs to do. Um, while the geometry and design stayed the same kind of on the back half of the building that kind of faces the alley, the front half of the building that has this canyon feature virtually changes every single level. Similarly, the, the columns, you know, so they're just concrete columns, right? No big deal. Unfortunately, in some places they're exposed. Well, I guess that's not unfortunate. Fortunately, in some places <laughs> they're exposed. 
Um, and so where they were going to be exposed, we wanted them to be round, or I say we, they. Yes. <laughs> um, it was decided the columns would be round where they're <laughs> exposed, and maybe in other places, you know, where it's more efficient, we'll have them be rectangular, and other places, sure, let's make them square. So altogether, although this building has kind of a small footprint, it's, you know, about the size of a football field, maybe, there were, I think, 19 column shapes that we have. So the general contractor loved that. <laughs> you know, we have squares, circles, <laughs> rectangles. They love it. You know, we yeah. got every single different form work for columns that you can imagine. A lot um, of re repetitive uh, things that they could do with that, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. And oftentimes those columns would transition from being rectangular on one level to round on the level above and maybe go back to being rectangular above that. So very often, you know, not only do we have a bunch of different column sizes um, and shapes, those column shapes may have several different reinforcing patterns just for each different column. So even though we may have a few different columns that are, you know, 24-inch diameter, we had some that had sort of low amounts of reinforcing steel in them, medium amounts of reinforcing steel. I think for those round ones, we even had a third version that had high amounts of reinforcing steel. So even for those similarly shaped ones, there was different reinforcing patterns, which made the shop drawings, you know, just really intensive. Um, and then there were all the transitions where you go from round to square. And Well, and let's pause for a second because I think there's another complexity of that too, just from a constructability standpoint. So for instance, if you have a rectangular one up above and you have to go into a circular one down below, for us as structural engineers, we have to make our reinforcement through that continuous. So it's like you're trying to fit reinforcement in a very densely packed space between two different shapes that don't really line up 100%, right? <laughs> exactly. And then add to that, you know, that transition is happening at the slab. And normally at the slab, we have a lot of tendons, usually concentrated at the columns. <laughs> so you have this vertical steel that you're describing going through, right where we have a ton of, you know, PT tendons and rebar. So it's a congested area, like you said. Crazy. As far as like, that column area, because uh, another thing is punching shear, right? So for those listeners that aren't familiar with structural design, that's essentially where the slab is pressing down on the column and you want to make sure that you don't shear off at that location. So there's different things that we as structural engineers have to do to reinforce that. So as you're talking about different shapes, like those are all different contact areas that you have to check for punching shear, right? You're totally right, where the punching shear was really a big issue. You know, we wanted to try to make our columns as efficient as possible, make them as small as possible um, while still having decent size spacing between those columns and fairly thin slabs. You put all those things together and you have the perfect combination for punching issues like you described. <laughs> um, and so a lot of our columns have additional reinforcing for that punching. And so, yeah, we had to be really diligent about that. And there's, you know, obviously a lot of penetrations, plumbing, HVAC, MEP, all of those good sleeves. And so with each level, we are still having to be really diligent to make sure that any of the, you know, sleeves and things that are planned to be put in there still work, you know, with the stud rail designs that we provided. Gotcha. So the stud rail designs or the stud rails are a thing that we as structural engineers use to kind of mitigate or help solve that punching shear issue. So that's also in addition to the slab reinforcement, the column reinforcement that's going vertical. And then you've got the stud rails through there too. So it's 
It's a lot of steel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much solid steel in in some locations. It's it's a wonder that they can fit concrete through there. That's crazy. How far is it in construction right now? Um, so we just did level eleven, the first floor of level eleven, um, the other day. So that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's really plugging along. So each floor is split into two pours, and they do one of those pours each week. So. Um, one pour per week, you know, so they get through basically one floor of the structure every two weeks. I like this is so fascinating to me because every other interview that I've done has been something that has been constructed and something, you know, that, you know, maybe five years ago or maybe two years ago. And this is like the first one where it's like actually coming to fruition and being built right now. So that's super fascinating. Right. I was answering RFIs before this call. So. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> we are very much in construction, that's for sure. Oh, well, I like. I am so honored that you took time out of the construction schedule oh, uh, sure. to talk for a little bit. But one thing I wanted to talk about, the gravity system as well. So we talked about it a little bit earlier as far as that cantilever where there's the canyon element. How far do those slabs have to cantilever over from a column element? I think our biggest cantilever is like 15 feet, you okay. know, from a column to the tip tip of that cantilever. So not super far, but normally at the tips of those, you know, edges where we're sticking out really far, that's right where we have these planters and trees. Oh so, <laughs> I'm, and, and if there's not a planter or a tree, then there's probably plaster there that's creating this kind of faux rock canyon look. So there's either dirt tree or you know plaster out at the edges of these things where they stick out their furthest so in a lot of those places we cambered the slab up some places as much as an inch in anticipation that once we load it up with soil and dirt and all that that the slab will come down and deflect downward the amount that we predicted and in the locations that we tilted it up an inch with camber that hopefully when it's all said and done that it's nice and flat and that this lab has deflected down. So we were, again, pretty diligent to go through and really look at those deflections and try to find where are the places that the slab is just deflecting a lot. And the only thing to do is, is provide camber. And so we definitely have a lot of sort of weird points. And in addition to the slab geometry that's, that's already there in 2D, it's already got an extra layer of complexity because of how we're sort of lifting it up in some places intentionally um, and sort of adding that third component to the for the formwork and um, really giving those guys out there a challenge in terms of building this thing. But they are just, you know, they're nailing it. So That's they've awesome. done great. And just, yeah, like I said, doing, you know, half a floor a week. So they've been just really good about getting the, the geometry totally correct. And um, <laughs> these cantilevers, I, I wasn't sure how it would go, you know, during design, seeing these crazy curves, but they're, you know, they're to that point now where they're doing these cantilevers um, that have elaborate curves on them and they're just having no problem. That's awesome. How thick is the slab at those cantilevers approximately? Usually nine inches is kind okay. of our, so that's usually what's carrying those planters and trees is just nine inches of concrete. <laughs> so are you using high strength concrete, higher than 4,000? Uh, yeah, so our slabs are 6,000 okay. and our walls and columns are 8,000. So a little bit of help with the extra concrete strength. But. Definitely, definitely. We needed it for sure at the, um, at the elevator shaft. I think that was kind of what drove things. We needed the 8,000 there 
And then we wanted to use the same mix with the columns. And with that being at 8,000 um, and knowing that normally the slabs can only have like a 2,000 PSI difference from what the columns are that are transferring load through there. So with the columns at 8,000, we said, okay, we've got to make the slabs at 6,000. And, okay. and it definitely helped. We have, you know, our slabs are, are working hard to carry these, these crazy loads. And they're post-tensioned, right? I don't remember if you said that or not, right? Yep, that's that's right. So they're post-tensioned slabs. Most of them have, you know, a lot of PT in the range where, you know, one measure of sort of quantifying how much post-tensioning there is is, is how much like pre-compression there is in the slab, how much that post-tensioning is squeezing your slab. And, you know, the normal value that you'll have in most areas is like 200 PSI of pre-compression. But we have, you know, double that in a lot of places. Okay. Um, where, you know, just as sort of a measure of like, there's some places where we have sort of double the normal amount of post-tensioning reinforcing that you might normally have in a slab that size and shape, but to carry these um, landscape loads and achieve these big cantilevers, it was basically necessary to just put a ton of uh, reinforcing in there, kind of as you would expect. Yeah. Well, and I just want to pause for just a second for our listeners that aren't familiar with post-tensioning. So it's a concrete slab that's cast in place and then concrete is really strong in compression, not not as strong in tension. So one thing to mitigate that and to get more a more efficient slab thickness is to put in these post-tension cables that are put in, cast in the concrete during the pour. And then once the concrete cures, they pull the end of that to kind of create compression in this like axial compression in the slab and it makes for a more efficient design. So I just kind of want to, it gets a little complex. It's way more complex than that, but I just wanted to kind of give a little background information to that because that is a very cool system, I guess, that's efficient. So I think it's important to point that out that it has the engineering behind it uh, that makes a very efficient design. Exactly. Yeah. These nine inch slabs would probably not have been possible um, without this PT reinforcing for sure. And and each of those outdoor areas that kind of create this outdoor canyon space, those are normally, you know, outdoor terraces. And so to make the waterproofing and that sort of thing work, those areas are sort of the, the slab is normally depressed from sort of the interior slab, right? It's maybe recessed or dropped. Um, in this case, it was normally dropped eight inches. So our inside slab is, you know, up here. And then the outside slab is a full eight inches below that. And so where that becomes a challenge is that those post-tensioning tendons you're describing, they really want to run, you know, a long length, basically across the building, ideally. And if you have these sort of big steps in the slab where it just randomly steps down in elevation eight inches, it can be really hard to get the tendons through those steps. Or even if you can, you know, physically run the tendon through the step, the geometry of that tendon is not, you know, as efficient as it would be in a flat slab. And so what does that mean? We have these big loads, we have this crazy geometry and these steps in the slab. And so we end up, like I said, with just so much post-tensioning, way more than the normal amount. And you've also got the punching shear reinforcing that you mentioned. You've got all of the regular mild steel reinforcing that is there for like crack control and placing various items in the slab. And then you add to that, you've got um, little embedded steel plates for the various random architectural elements to plug into. Before you know it, the slab is just full of stuff and there's, you know, very little concrete left in some places, it seems. <laughs> Makes those uh, 
shop drawings. Those rebar shop drawings were real fun to review, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they are they are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the like speaking of reinforcement, what's the lateral system of the building then? I guess we talked yeah. about that a little bit, but maybe if we could talk about it in a little more detail. Yeah, yeah. So the lateral system is kind of just the single elevator shaft that runs up the center of the building. So we've got, you know, a middle elevator core that has three elevators and sort of the elevator control room. It's basically a large square um, that runs all the way up the building. And there are 18 inch thick concrete walls that creates that shaft, big square lateral core. Um, and that's basically the entirety of our lateral system. Where it gets difficult is on some floors and some locations, the geometry is such that the thickness above our entries into this core wall system, if you will, you have to walk through doors to get into the elevators, right? In some places, the amount of wall left above those doors, what we would call the link beams, right? Some places, that was just too shallow, and what we had was our link beams in many of and several levels were just maxed out, and they wouldn't work as concrete. So this was kind of one of the more just unique elements of the design, and definitely for sure the most unique element of the lateral design is that for levels three, four, and five, the big openings in those core walls, rather than doing like reinforced concrete beams with just regular, you know, concrete and, you know, rebar, we provided giant steel beams that were embedded and encased in the concrete wall. Uh, I want to say they were W24 by 131. Okay. And 131 is the weight per lineal foot of that Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they're, you know, and 24 inches deep. So it's a two foot deep steel beam that weighs over a hundred pounds a foot. These things are probably like, you know, 12 or 15 feet long. So these beams are probably like 2000 pounds at least <laughs> on their own. One giant piece of rebar, way larger mm-hmm. than the bars these guys are used to setting. So that was basically our only option to make the lateral system work on those levels with sort of the doorway geometry and constraints we were given. And so we designed it as such. And although it kind of sounds bizarre, it's a, it's a technique that's done, you know, often in the, on the West Coast, normally in like more seismic areas where the buildings need to be designed to be extra ductile and, and really respond well in earthquakes. This is kind of a, an approach that those guys have to take somewhat often. Um, here in Denver, this is not, you know, a high seismic zone, and we don't normally have to do some of those really elaborate concrete reinforcement methods, such as embedding a giant steel beam. So when we called it out, we, you know, designed it as such, it was really the only thing we could get to work. The contractor was really concerned that they wouldn't be able to, for one, place this really giant heavy beam, that it was going to be really hard you know, who does that? Is it the concrete guys? Is it the carpenters who build the formwork? Is it the rebar guys? You know, so who's responsible? How does it work? And ultimately, they were really concerned that if they place this giant steel beam basically embedded in a concrete wall, and then you try to pour concrete around it, what if the concrete doesn't flow well around the beam, you know, and how are we going to fix that? How would we patch that if it doesn't flow well? They were really concerned that the concrete wouldn't get good consolidation around the beam. And so we met several times. We really planned and coordinated with the contractor, the steel beam supplier, with the rebar installer, and really worked it out. They installed two of these beams, the you know the first two, really without a hitch. Um, we inspected it all the way from A to Z, looked that thing up and down, 
you know, we came out for structural observations, checked it out. It totally looked fine. They installed it totally great. They poured the concrete, concrete consolidated, totally fine. And you would never know that there's a giant steel beam embedded, you know, in this concrete wall now, um, unless you're me walking through. And so it was really a big coordination effort, really totally out of left field for the construction team. But um, they were able to make it happen. And that was really, you know, our saving grace. Otherwise, maybe we would have had to make the elevator walls thicker or something, <laughs> thicker than 18 inches. When it was a way to keep the same, like architecturally, keep the same footprint, you know, you don't have to go into leasable space. And yeah, that's sounds like a great solution. Yeah, it was it was really cool to see it all work out. And, you know, it was certainly my first time seeing that done. Um, as a guy from Texas, we definitely don't have the uh, <laughs> seismic, you know, issues down there in our designs to worry about. And so it was, yeah, my first time to really see it designed this way, implemented and, and carried out. And it was really cool. Awesome. Okay. So one thing I want to talk about too. So one of the biggest features I think of this building is kind of how biophilics are worked into the outer design of it. So that I think there's like a, a hiking path through there. And I, I love how this ties in. So you and I talked a little bit before we started recording and I love how this ties into things that you're passionate about as well. Cause you just got done hiking 400, if I'm correct, 446 miles in Colorado, right? Is it the yep. Colorado trail? That's correct. Consecutively, nonstop, over 20-some, almost 30 days. You would know the exact number, I'm sure, because I'm sure it was <laughs> testing. Um, how many days exactly was it? 24 days. 24 days. Um, and I feel like this, uh, kind of the hiking trail through here, the way that it has nature woven into the design kind of ties into kind of your passion for hiking too. But if we could maybe just talk a little bit about how biophilia has worked into the overall design of this. And it's not just like some plants that are like attached to the outside of the building. It's integrated through this canyon, through that 20 foot recess that creates a vertical canyon and then also this horizontal kind of walking way so can you talk about that a little bit and then also maybe about the design challenges I mean we talked about the cantilever a little bit but just some of the other design challenges that that came up when designing for that yeah definitely definitely yeah and you you totally described it totally right that like the biophilia and biophilic sort of nature of design was sort of one of the leading goals and one of the the primary constraints for the design architect um, and for us, for, for the whole team, really. So you'd see these renderings. It would show these trees, you know, lots of trees at the ground level with like boulders and sort of some undulating plaster that resembles sort of rock walls, sort of natural rock walls, right? And you would see it again at like the sixth level. It appears again. That's where this waterfall and sort of you start to see some smaller planters. And that grows and grows as you go up. And it was really well described, and, and I had never seen it described this way. All through design, um, we got to construction, and, and there was an article written in which they kind of described it, and I think they maybe interviewed the, um, the owner. And so I should give the owner credit. I think it was someone with Max Collaborative. But they basically said that like the building is meant to really resemble like the Colorado biomes, that here in Colorado you know, in Denver, for sure, you're in the plains, you're in the flat, nothing, you know, people think, oh, come to Denver, and I'm in the mountains. But when you're in Denver, you're still basically in the plains, you're in the flat stuff. And as you leave Denver, and you head west, you 
go through some small little mountains, we'll call them the foothills here, and then you get to the big mountains with like alpine lakes and aspen trees, right? And what the building landscape team did and the architects and what I was kind of unaware of is that the building really resembles that, that low down on those lower levels, there's like short shrubs and short plants and short grasses and this sort of rocky feature at level one that's supposed to kind of mimic the rolling hills here in Denver. And then as you get up to like level six and sort of midway up the building, you start to get like pine trees and landscape and features that resemble sort of the, the you know, foothills and sort of the, the various planting and, and stuff you see out there. And as you get up higher to the roof, the trees kind of change in type to like alpine trees and um, aspen trees and really resemble, you know, the high Colorado mountain landscapes. And, you know, the pool up there is meant to like sort of resemble like a high alpine lake. So while, you know, all this was sort of, you know, happening in front of us during the design, I'm certainly never looking at the trees and things that closely. But when I read that in that in that magazine, it was really a opened my eyes to sort of what this building is really doing and sort of mimicking the Colorado biomes and environments and reflecting that back and and bringing that into the city, condensing that into a building and placing that in the middle of Denver in sort of an industrial area of Denver that's just very much so in the city and taking all the different types of nature and, and outdoors that Colorado has and lumping it all together and combining it into this building that people can live in in the city. And so, you know, I think the slogan or tagline is like bringing nature to Denver or something along those lines. And, and that's how they did it was trying to just mimic all the nature that's here and really like go above and beyond with it with trees and, and shrubs and things just located everywhere they possibly could be. And if there's not a tree or a shrub, then there's some sort of swoop-de-doop-de plaster that looks really neat. And so what does that mean for us in terms of the loading? <laughs> like, you know, at level one, okay, there's trash trucks and things like that driving across level one we have to design for. Okay, so that's really challenging, but not so bad. Maybe some boulders here and there. And so on our drawings, we had to explicitly put little notes that said, you know, boulders not to exceed such and such weight and, you know, give special notes about boulders and, and really specific landscape things that we wouldn't normally have to put on our drawings. As you work your way up, though, um, you get sort of through these typical levels. It's all indoor. Okay, no big deal. You get then to the where the, the canyon begins at level six, and that's where you have more boulders that are now sitting on thinner slabs way high up in the air and the waterfall and larger trees, in which case in a lot of those tree and like planter wells, we would normally design for like 250 pounds per square foot or more, which is a heavily occupied space, like an auditorium or an assembly area where you expect a lot of people, those are normally designed for 100 pounds per square foot, right? So in some of these heavy dirt areas, we're saying, oh, it's going to be more than twice what that would require to, to hold a bunch of people. So we really tried to make sure that if the use of these areas ever changes, if they you know, are showing a flower garden here, but maybe they change their mind and want to put, you know, deeper soil or something there, change the use later. We kind of accounted for that. So as you go up, those soil locations increase. They start to become out there on those cantilever tips, like you said, and make each level a totally unique slab design, just not only because of the geometry, but the loading. And so I really tried to 
you know, utilize the connection between our design software, which in this case we used Concept, was sort of the program we used for the, for the concrete slab design. And that kind of sort of talks nicely to Revit, you know, the program we used to make our drawings. So we really tried to leverage that. And in Revit, I can create a plan that shows exactly where these planners are. And I can export that to my concrete slab design program. Boom, put in those loads exactly where they are. And then repeat that process for the plaster and for the water and for the pavers maybe at the balconies so that we knew there was going to be a lot of load. We knew it was going to take a lot of, you know, post-tensioning reinforcing. And so we really wanted to try to refine that loading and put it in accurately as much as we could so we weren't, you know, just overdoing it and um, try to be as efficient as we could um, with these really highly loaded areas. And so... Like I said, with each floor, that was a different, you know, a different geometry, a different layout. We had to repeat that process every time. You couldn't just copy and paste the floor loading you figured out from below to the one above. As you went up, it just got more and more complicated, culminating with the roof that has trees and a giant pool. <laughs> and, of course, you know, mechanical penthouse with, you know, your, your uh, mechanical, like, air conditioning units, a big DOAS unit and all of these things that weigh tens of thousands of pounds, and a dog walk area. So they, they really lump everything onto the roof as like the, the final boss level, okay? <laughs> you have played the game and, and really made it this far up, and now you must, you know, defeat the final challenge. <laughs> it's the Bowser at the top. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Bowser was waiting for me up there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, every level is just a, a challenge. And, and that's what it had to be, though, to make this geometry to make all those slab steps and all the curves and all that work. That's basically sort of what the design was going to require. Yeah. So did you have to work pretty integral with the landscape architect then? Like more than you would on a typical project because of all these, I guess, landscape features? Oh, yeah. Intimately with the, archi or with the landscape architect and the design architect. And in this case, there was a design architect and an architect of record. So the design architect was MAD architecture out of L.A. and China. And then there was a local architecture firm, Davis, that was sort of the architect of record. And luckily, they were also the landscape architect. So they kind of had all that in-house. Um, we were super familiar with them. We've done a lot of projects with, with Davis. And so we were, you know, really familiar with their landscape team. But, yeah, we had to work with them a lot to figure out, like, how deep are these planners? How wide are you expecting these concrete walls to be? You know, what, where exactly are these things? And that mm -hmm. was sort of one of the biggest challenges. And, and one of the things that really was totally unique about this was it's common that the structural engineer will show all the concrete stuff, right? We'll show the concrete slab. We'll show the concrete columns. Well, in this case, and we'll show the concrete walls even, you know. In this case, the concrete slab has some, like, you know, geometry that's literally undefinable. You know, these are curves, nerve curves, Google that. A nerve <laughs> curve is basically like an undefinable curve. It's like a curve, it's like what you would draw if you were drawing a squiggly with, you know, by hand on a piece of paper. And that's virtually what some of these slab edges are. In addition to that, maybe you have a concrete wall that then follows that slab edge. So now that wall is also an undefined squiggly. And that wall needs to be what it is based on what the landscape guys are doing. And so there was this more intense interplay of like, the landscape guys are going to show the landscape walls, 
the structural guys will show the structural walls. The architecture team will just show miscellaneous architectural walls. And we would try to not show the same walls. And when I say I show them, I mean like modeling them in Revit. Mm -hmm. And so the way that Revit works is we will, you know, draw our walls and slabs. And then the architect draws their walls and slabs. And the landscape draws their walls and slabs. The program works its magic and just overlays all of that. So that you can see right away, boom, I'm showing a wall here. The architect is showing it over here. Wait a minute, we have a problem. And so the challenge on this one was then, okay, well, who shows what wall? Like, what is a structural wall? What is a landscape wall? You know, what if this wall is holding up dirt? Okay, well, that's a landscape wall. Okay, well, then what if it's also plugging into the glass curtain wall? All right, well, now that's a structural wall. (laughs) And depending on its usage would determine what model it was modeled in and basically like then what drawings, you know, show the geometry for that. And so that was probably, while the, like the design of the building itself was certainly challenging, the coordination of like who's showing what and how to show it was probably the biggest like unexpected side of all of this. Like how do you document these, you know, curves? What they ended up having to do was basically provide a grid system so that the contractor could kind of figure out, you know, using this grid where these curves were. Because mm-hmm. you can't, like, put a dimension to these things. They're, like, undimensionable. What do you think is the most fascinating thing about this building? Um, for sure, the geometry of it. The, you know, amount of exposed structure and the shapes of the building are really only possible with, like, really pushing the limits of the structural design. So you really have to, like push the limits of slab design, of pushing the limits of your column design, and really like leveraging all the available things in structural design to make those, these shapes uh, yes. bring them to life. That is super fascinating. So if you were to give the building a theme song, what would One River North's theme song be? Um, my thought for what the theme song for the uh, building would be, you know, I thought of like cheesy ones that definitely come to mind, right? Like Stairway to Heaven, right? Because we have these cool stairways <laughs> or maybe don't go chasing waterfalls or something because we have these cool waterfalls. <laughs> Love it. But that's too easy. That's too easy. No, this is a cool building <laughs> in Denver. So I figured, you know, we need to do something that like, so I went with a Denver artist. Okay. The theme song for this building okay. is Good Places by Rum Tum. Because okay, I don't even title, know this artist. That's amazing. There you, there you go. So they're like okay, a, good places. A chill guy, and he's from Rhino in Denver, from you know the very place where this building is being built. A Denver artist, and it's all just kind of like nature vibes music. And good places is the name of the song. It says it all right there. This is a building that's like all about being good places, that bringing all the good places of Colorado, boom, right here. That's your theme song. Love it. That's awesome. I think he needs to show up to your topping out party and be playing good places in the pool for the topping out party. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll send him the email. (laughs) Yeah. Talk talk to his people, right? Maybe just, just, I mean, you probably have him. You can just send him a text. You probably know him that well. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Hey, Rum Tum. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so I have a running, like, I have this theory that structural engineers and architects, too, but there's a higher likelihood that they're left-handed than the the general public. So 
you can probably guess that I am left-handed since I have this <laughs> theory. But are you left-handed or right-handed? Oh, well, I hate to ruin your theory, but I am one of the lame right-handed people. Yeah, yeah, I am right-handed. Uh, no worries. I didn't mean to put the pressure on. I'm. It's so funny you say that because, you know, we have a small office and... When the subject last came up, like half the people in our office are left-handed. And that's like, yeah. So we have this tiny office, you know, not that many people. And so many of them are left-handed. I don't get it. But okay, you, you must be onto something. To yeah. Someday <laughs> this is going to come to fruition and I'm going to prove something. <laughs> That'll probably be on my deathbed, but I'm still trying. <laughs> okay, Austin. So we talked about some things a little bit, but how do you recharge? Um, so definitely spending time with my fiance and those dogs that were just barking, making a bunch of noise. Um, we got a bunch of dogs. We love to take them out, you know, hiking, camping, you know, anything outside. So, um, love doing all that sort of stuff and biking and just being outdoors, doing fun stuff. I just love to stay active and, and, you know, I'm always doing something. Sounds like it's very, very typical Colorado lifestyle. <laughs> We've got the dogs and we go hiking, you know, there we go, Colorado. Yes, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I can tell that you have a ton of energy and that you're very passionate about structural engineering and about having a life outside of work. And this has been super fun and super interesting. I cannot wait to see this building fully constructed. Please invite me to the Rum Chum Topping Out Party and let me know when that is because I want to make sure that I'm there too because it's going to be a blast. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what we're all looking forward to. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks for being here. I really appreciate you taking time out. I know it's crazy busy. So thanks for taking time to sit down and talk about One River North. Oh, you're welcome, Carrie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to 
We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender.